0: Hello and welcome to A Mighty Blaze Podcast, now part of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. I'm your host, Tricia Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze is your online and audio destination for the very best interviews with blockbuster authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. Today's special guest, Jane Allen, is the author of Black Girls Must Die Exhausted, Black Girls Must Be Magic, and the forthcoming third installment in the series. As if all that wasn't enough, Jane also happens to be an attorney, an entrepreneur, and an occasional stand-up comic. She visited A Mighty Blaze to talk with fellow writer Nancy Johnson, author of The Kindest Lie, about digging into the themes of motherhood and infertility, the challenges of writing about race, and her non-traditional path to publishing so settle in and enjoy the conversation as i pass the blaze torch to nancy and her multi-talented guest jane allen
1: hello everybody and welcome to a mighty blaze the friday frontliner special event I'm Nancy Johnson, uh, host of uh, one of the hosts of A Mighty Blaze, as well as the author of The Kindest Lie. And I'm here with my friend and fellow author, Jane Allen, who is the author of the Black Girls Trilogy. And I, just before we get started in our conversation, which we can't wait to jump into, I just wanted to um, take a moment to just acknowledge uh, the time that we're in right now. We're in an international crisis with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And our thoughts here at A Mighty Blaze are certainly with the people of Ukraine, as well as the people of Russia who have been brave, the ones who have been brave and standing up against this aggression. And uh, it is really just a difficult time for us as a, as a world. And I do believe though that there's power in books to connect us across difference. And so, I am excited to be here for us to talk about our books, which I think do uh, exactly that. And so we're going to tell you guys about each other's books and about each other. And I'm going to kick it over to you, Jane, to uh, start.
2: Well, thank you so much, Nancy. And thank you to everybody that's watching. Um, Thank you to a mighty blaze for having both of us. And it is truly my pleasure to um, introduce you, Nancy. Uh, It's been such a pleasure to get to know you over a few events now, and I'm just an incredible person, and I'd love to share more about your background. Uh, a native of Chicago's South Side, Nancy Johnson worked for more than a decade as an MA-nominated, award-winning television journalist at CBS and ABC affiliates in markets nationwide. Her debut novel, The Kindest Lie, is the target book club pick for February, it has been reviewed by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and is featured on Entertainment Weekly's must list. It was a New York Times editor's choice selection and has been named one of the most anticipated books of 2021 by Newsweek, O, The Oprah Magazine, Deland, NBC News, Marie Claire, L, The Chicago Tribune, The New York Post, Good Housekeeping, Parade, Refinery29, and more. A graduate of Northwestern University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which we'll have to talk about, because you know I want to do. Nancy uh, lives in downtown Chicago and manages brand communications for a large healthcare nonprofit. The Kindest Lie is her first novel. Well, thank you so much. Yep, this is it, Kind Kindest Lie. This is it. Yes, yes. Should I, should I read a bit about The Kindest Lie? Do you want to do that? Sure. I'll do that, and then um, you can switch over. So this is the paperback version. I actually have both uh, the hardcover and the paperback for the <laughs> kind of <the> lie. <laughs> nice. So beautiful. I love these covers. Uh, so a promise could betray you if you have not read the kindest lie. This will definitely make you pick it up, and you can get it in Target. As a book club pick now. So it's 2008, and the rise of Barack Obama ushers in a new kind of hope. In Chicago, Ruth Tuttle, an Ivy League-educated Black engineer, is married to a kind and successful man. He's eager to start a family, but Ruth is uncertain. She has never gotten over the baby she gave birth to and was forced to give up when she was a teenager. She knows that to move forward, she must make peace with the past. Returning home to the Indiana factory town of her youth, Ruth discovers that it is plagued by unemployment, racism, and despair. While her family is happy to see her, they remind her of the painful sacrifices they made to give her a shot at a better future. As Ruth uncovers the burning secrets they desperately want to hide, she befriends Midnight, a young white boy who is also looking for connection. When a traumatic incident strains the town's already scorching racial tensions, Ruth and Midnight find themselves on a collision course that could upend both their lives. Oh,
1: thank you so much for reading that. Yeah, thank you. It's always so weird, so surreal to hear somebody read your bio and to read about your book and it it just feels real, you know. This it's kind of
2: funny. oh, you're so accomplished, Nancy. So, it, and the book's amazing. So, it's oh, thank you, thank you. And so, I'm
1: really excited. Um, I have Jane's other book too, Black Girls Must Die Exhausted, but I'm in between <laughs> places. I'm that's at my mom's house, so I got her books everywhere, you know. Surrounded. <laughs> by me. Uh, let me tell you about Jane. Jane Allen is the pen name of Janique Seely, a graduate of. Duke University. We will talk about that Harvard, at Harvard Law School. And I think you're I repping know. that with your. must say You're repping that I'm with repping today. Yes, absolutely.
0: Historic day.
1: Yes, yes, it is. It is. Uh, drawing from her unique experiences as an attorney and entrepreneur, she crafts transcultural stories that touch upon contemporary women's issues. She's the author of Black Girls Must Die: Exhausted, her first novel which she calls the epithet of my thirties. And then she also has Black Girls Must Be Magic. And then there's going to be a third book in the trilogy that's coming out. A proud native of Detroit, she lives in Los Angeles. And I'm gonna read you a brief description of Black Girls Must Be Magic. And this is the story of Tabitha. So you don't, and so I'm telling you is I read the first one and I've read this one and you don't really have to have read both to understand story and to pick it up, but it's great to read all three so that you can follow the journey of Tabitha. Uh, For Tabitha Walker, her grandmother's adage, Black girls must die exhausted, is becoming all too true. Discovering she's pregnant after she was told she may not be able to have biological children, Tabitha throws herself headfirst into the world of single mothers by choice. Between her job, doctor's appointments, and preparing for the baby, she's worn out. And that's before her boss at the local news station starts getting complaints from viewers about Tabitha's natural hair. When an unexpected turn of events draws Mark, her on and off again ex-boyfriend, back into her world with surprising demands, and the situation at work begins to threaten her livelihood and her identity, Tabitha must make some tough decisions about her and her baby's future. Bolstered by the fierce support of Miss Gretchen, her grandmother's best friend, the counsel of her closest friends, Layla and Alexis, and the calming presence of her doula, Andale, Tabitha must find a way to navigate motherhood on her own terms. Will she harness the bravery, strength, and self love she'll need to keep the village together? Find her voice at work and settle things with Mark before the baby arrives. <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> so you gotta read it to find out what's gonna happen. So, yeah, I'm so excited uh, for your books and everything that you're doing. Are you there, Jade? I think we're having, are we having a technical problem there?
0: We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor.
2: Do you want to hear how successful authors got their start? The Queries, Quams, and Quirks podcast asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. Author Sarah Nicholas interviews authors of all genres about how they got started writing, getting their book deal, and their experiences with publication. Sounds like something that would be up our alley. Listen on your favorite podcast app or go to sarahnicholas.com for more info. (music) About that technical. All right. Thanks,
1: Julie, for coming in.
2: Thank I was going to have
1: a little convo with Julie. Yeah. <laughs> so I talked to myself. Hopefully, it will
2: happen. <laughs> Hopefully, that will not happen again. Uh, but there are technical difficulties.
1: Oh, I know. Um, oh, I did want to say you were talking. We had said earlier that you were wearing Harvard, and we, we were saying you were repping Harvard Law School. And I'm assuming that's because of uh, our president, uh, Biden, um, selecting. Um, Judge Jackson. Jackson, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, as his nominee, yes yeah. for the Supreme
2: Court. Yes, yeah, a historic day, um, and I, I uh, something is just so important. I think is just a reminder that there. I, I would say thank you to her for standing in the gap between what is impossible and what has not happened yet and reminding us that there is a difference. And so I just think that's something for all of us to celebrate is, is that reminder. And um, and it's just an exciting day. All of my classmates have been texting each other and um, just very joyful.
0: Yeah, I
1: heard um, Laura Coates, who's um, a black attorney um, who uh, is on, uh, on CNN often as a legal analyst. And I heard her say this morning that she said today as a Black attorney, we are all being nominated to the Supreme Court. <laughs> every single, time. I know. It's
2: like all and, of us
1: um, I I'm not an attorney, but I'm a Black woman, and yeah. I'm like, yeah, I've been nominated too. And so there's just yeah. a sense of pride that we feel.
2: A sense of pride. And I think it's that. I was, I was trying to think, you know, what's yeah. the general, um, the general, story of this. You know, why is this, does this feel like such a a victory? And and to me, it's that reminder, again, that there is a difference between what is impossible and what has not, and just hasn't happened yet. And we have these moments like this that I think are celebrations for all of us, Black women and women in general, and all people who have been told by one reason for one reason or another in society that something or a dream is impossible, and then to have a reminder that there is a difference between impossible and hasn't happened yet. So yes. it's like oh, well. we all come up for that. Oh, yes. <laughs> so speaking of that, actually I'm talking about path to publication.
1: <laughs> there you go. She's a path to the Supreme Court. We're we got our paths
0: to publication. Right.
2: exactly which again is is again that kind of a similar theme especially you know that that curious path of of becoming published for me it was a non-traditional path and i wound up putting my book out uh on my own uh after being told that my my main character was not relatable and uh and then discovering that there was an audience and believing there was an audience and finding that audience and ultimately moving to traditional publication. And I think for every author that experience, their own unique experience to to getting published and finding their way to an audience is one of those things where it's that difference between impossible and, and hasn't happened. And I'd love to hear your experience and your path publication, and also um, fi- how and, and the experience of ultimately becoming a Target Club pick, which is such a huge, uh, wonderful development, and and gives you, uh, act, you know, people can find your books and access your books everywhere, even who wouldn't traditionally find themselves in a bookstore. So I think it's really important, especially to have that kind of access. So yeah, love to- yeah.
1: and I can start with the end there with Target because we both experienced that yeah. being Target book club picks. Because I see your books in there too uh, on the same um, you know shelves that uh, my book you know is as well at Target, and it was just surreal. I mean, I got an email from my editor, and it said Target in all caps with a bunch of exclamation points. I was just <laughs> just blown away to hear that. That my novel is the Target Book Club pick for February, so I still see it everywhere. Some stores, my you know, my picture is there too with a little blurb about the book, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just so exciting! And you know, I had to to sign all those um, those um, tip-in sheets. That's what it's called. Yes, I remember these seven boxes arriving at my doorstep, filled with these seven thousand tip-in sheets that I had to sign. I used over. 20 pens to sign them so basically i'm just autographing them um, yeah. for uh, for readers and you know it's just such a blessing to be in target because i think you know people are buying their paper towels and they can also get a paperback <laughs> along yeah. with it so it's a dream come true but it's like you said you know it's that's the you know where we are now but the journey to get here you know so many people look at only the end Result and think that's where it started. But no, it started so long ago. All the blood, sweat, and tears of, you know, writing the book. So it took me six years to write the kindest lie. And I workshopped it a lot, had many beta readers, and and I got tons of rejections. I stopped counting how many rejections I got uh, for this book. But there was one literary agent, Danielle Bukowski at Sterling Lord Literistic, who rejected. And then I emailed her to say, thank you. I plan to incorporate your feedback and revise. She said, if you're going to revise, get back with me. And then fast forward almost two years later, after I'd done a lot more work on the book, she offered representation. And then it took me only two and a half weeks to get the book deal. So things started to move a lot faster. And so I just think there's so many people out there who have a book, you know, in their heart or a book on the computer and they don't know if they can do it. And I think you and I are here as a testament that, that anything is possible when you persevere. Yeah. You know, you've got yeah. to stick with it.
2: And I think it's great that we both have two different types of stories and two different pathways and two different uh, ways through obstacles. And, and I think being able to tell that story and building out, showing, showing I would say showing the work of it uh, yeah. and those decision point moments, um, even in, you know, you're giving the follow-up and saying, you know, I'm, I'm planning on incorporating your, cause people, sometimes they just get that negative feedback and deflate a little bit and, and you awesome. know. yeah. So, and on the sharing on the target uh, story, when yeah. I, uh, when I got the announcement, the inform the news from my publisher, they didn't, they, it was like a surprise. They didn't tell me what was happening. And this was like, kind of early on into our relationship and they're like well can you come to a meeting um all of us are you know going to be in the meeting it was like the, all, the publisher everybody i an editor and i was like oh no did i do something wrong i was like am i in trouble oh that's so funny i called my agent i was like i think i'm in trouble <laughs> it's all hands meeting about, about me like, It's an intervention like I did something wrong. Yeah. and so they were they were like we just want to tell you we just wanted to tell you I mean this was as much in person as we could be um but they, they were like yeah this this is the news that uh, it's a target club pick and so congratulations and it was it was a nice celebration celebratory moment <laughs> <laughs>
1: for sure Sharon saying you're in a good kind of trouble right good kind
2: of it. trouble exactly. no trouble. I, was so I mean, I was so worried. Like, I, I I, remember me, I think I'm in trouble.
1: I think I'm in trouble. Like, oh yeah. no, that is so funny. Yeah, yeah. So I know we want to also talk about, I mean, the, you and I, we, we have different books, but there are some common themes in yeah. both of our books, quite a few actually, but I think one of the biggest ones is motherhood and just the unconventional treatment of Motherhood and really digging into the interior journey of yes. the women, the mothers uh, in our books. And I know for me, with the Kindest lie, um, I kind of wrestled too with having uh, my main character Ruth have been being having been a teenage mother, you know, mm. because she also a black woman. And I was thinking too right. about that representation uh, aspect as well. Yeah. But um, teenage mother, and then she walks away from her baby so that she can go on to um Yale and then go on to become an engineer and that's not a very popular choice for a mother to make and women are often judged harshly for making that kind of a decision and so I knew that was going to be difficult too because I might get some feedback from readers that uh you know that wasn't the right thing to do and then she goes not only that i think where i got the most feedback was that she then goes back to her hometown trying to search for her son so then she's possibly disrupting the life of the child she walked away from, you know, so it's kind of that double uh, injury there. And then also then she meets Midnight, this poor young white boy, and he's also searching for this sense of family and connection. And so then Ruth is also becoming a surrogate mother in many ways, you know, because she hasn't had the opportunity, even though she's a mother biologically, she hasn't had the opportunity to really mother until she meets Midnight, uh, you know, which is, you know, 11 years later, And so that's an interesting relationship. And then um, I also have this mother, Verna Cunningham, who is a black mother who has to have the talk with Mm -hmm. her black son. And that is not the talk about sex, but the talk about um, how to be and comport yourself as a black boy in America and all the dangers that go along with that. And so that's also another view of motherhood that is unique in many ways to black mothers that other mothers don't have to necessarily walk that same journey. I was just talking to a book club group the other night, an all white book club group. And, and I was saying to them, I was like, you know, when white mothers are having the talk, it's, or not the talk, but if they're worried about their child, it's like, you know, is, is my kid going to get in an accident or right. you know, is this happen? just the natural things that parents worry about. But this is unique I think to um, this kind of mothering. And then finally, I'll just say the character of mama, who's a grandmother, Ruth's grandmother in the book. She's somebody who really holds on tight to her grandchildren and loves hard, you know, and can be questionable too, in terms of the choices she makes uh, as she mothers, but she's doing what she thinks is best and what's going to get them ahead in life. And so, it's just all for me. It's always about the complexities and the difficult choices that women have to make as mothers. Um, so, what about you? You know, what inspired your uh, unique take on uh, motherhood with Tabitha?
2: For for me, it's I've had a unique view of it in my life. Uh, I'm sis, I'm in my early mid forties, uh, if I'm giving my actual age, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I've never been married, and I. Uh, froze my eggs in my late thirties. And that was one of those experiences. And I also dealt with fibroids. And so dealing with both of these like reproductive health issues kind of later in life, it's a experience of knowing nothing, hearing nothing, talking nothing about this. And then all of a sudden you need to know everything because all of a sudden it's time is of the essence. You need to do this right away. And you need to, and it's a war of information and time. And it really does matter how much you know and that does affect your outcomes. So I found myself in a position that uh, not even knowing whether or not I wanted to be a mother, but knowing that if I didn't do something, that option would not be, a, it wouldn't be a choice at, at, at some point soon. And so I had to go about that and I didn't have the benefit. I couldn't find really anything in fiction about that kind of struggle or journey, but in that world, it was just a very broad, deep, world of stories of struggle and triumph and internal decisions and uh, experience that's kind of in the shadows that we don't talk about that that we should you know there there's shame there there's all of this it's just so much that should be unpacked and so it just inspired me to add this into the realm of fiction and uh, and there was very little in the space of nonfiction very little especially as it pertained to the world of being a single mother, by choice or choosing to proceed without a partner. Uh, There was very little with respect to egg freezing, the IVF journey, there's so little. And I think almost nothing in fiction. And so I thought, okay, this is an important story to tell. And I think it's an important story to tell from a black woman's perspective, because so much of uh, that journey of motherhood has a stigma attached to it societally. Single motherhood is not the same perception-wise, stigma-wise for Black women. Reproductive health and fertility, even the myth of hyper fertility for Black women, is not the same. And so I thought, wow, this story, this journey, is going to be really, really interesting from the perspective of a Black woman, and uh, and just interesting generally, but. Her unique take on it and all the societal layers added on top of it really makes a great, you know, juicy tale here. So, yes. uh, so that was that was my thinking. I, I wanted to normalize uh, these aspects, and I also wanted to destigmatize, get rid of some of these stigmas around single motherhood, get rid of some of these stigmas around fertility, and um, get erase the shame. I just, you know, the the weight of all the other things that we're dealing with, and the weight of all those other journeys let's, you know, erase the shame of this. And, and we should be able to bring this into community and normalize these conversations and, and be able to talk about it. So that was something that um, that I wanted to, to see and, and uh, was hoping that could also happen, that people wouldn't feel alone uh, and feel more seen. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that's what I felt reading your book too. Like I've connected
1: so much with Tabitha and with her journey. And, and I told you before that I was 40, when I was 40, Um, years old. I went to the gynecologist and, you know, we had a conversation. He was really blunt with me that I had to make a decision on what I wanted to do. And, you know, and I was like, "Uh, I'm not married. You know what I mean? Because I still have that in my head that I would have to be married. And he said, do you care more about your social situation or being a mother? And that was really uh, tough. It was a harsh question I felt at the time Mm -hmm. to be asked. And I didn't know what to do with that. And so I didn't do anything and not doing anything is also a choice as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's important. I I love the way that you've shown all of these different aspects and sort of the other side of motherhood and all of these other journeys without really um, attaching judgment to them, but just showing the human journey of this and showing the fullness of humanity through of motherhood. And I think that was what I wanted to do too, was show the human journey of this and, and remove that societal layer of judgment, which doesn't allow us to to show the vulnerability and to really share uh, and to allow others to learn or feel
1: yeah. community. Right, right. And other women see themselves in our stories and they know it's okay to feel what they feel because they're not yeah. alone in that. Yeah. And so yeah. You have someone reading my book or your book, and they're saying, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 That, 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 because that's what I do with the books that I really connect with. And uh, yeah. And that's what I think we want.
2: Yeah. Have you had this is a side question, but have you had <laughs> readers say to you, you know, that this is this was like touched upon something for them that? they didn't know or they you know felt seen or there was a piece of their experience they were just glad to have represented?
1: Yes, definitely. And some people have told me directly, I've heard it through others too. So like one of my best friends in Dallas actually is a professor at a um, community college. And she told me recently that one of her students came up to her who doesn't know me and said, oh, I want to tell you about this book I read that changed my life. And it was my book, The kind of slide I was like, oh, my gosh. Because it really helped heal this young woman's relationship with her mother. And uh-huh. they were having a lot of strife. And I don't know all the details of that. But I've had so many people say to me that, you know, it, it's really been meaningful in terms of their relationship with their sibling or with their mother or their spouse. Um, you know, when, when we talk about the issue of race, you know, one woman in a book club said, she said, my father and I... Um, have been arguing about this race thing. And we can't have a conversation without getting into a fight about it. And she said, mm-hmm. until you know, I introduced your book and we talked about the characters and that's the mm-hmm. beauty of it. That's why I do what I do. And so when I hear those stories, everything that I've gone through to get here to publication is worth it for those moments. And to know that I had that kind of an impact through my work.
2: That that's amazing those moments I, I, there's a moment where um, it, it was my I was talking to one of my neighbors and she didn't we hadn't really spoken before and we were both walking dogs and she asked me what did I do for a living I was like well I'm an author I have a book out <laughs> it goes into this conversation but I said you know I, I brought up that it tackles infertility uh, they, Thank you, Sharon. Uh, Sharon said the book cover is gorgeous. I appreciate oh, that. <laughs> but my neighbor said uh, that she—I um, was telling her about the infertility theme that is within this book and, and reproductive health theme, and she's like, she's like, wow. She's like, she's like, I actually uh, can relate to that. I, she's dealing with endometriosis. Wow. She's like, I've never actually said that to anybody, and when I uh, talk to my friends. You know, with my friends, I don't want to say anything because I think it's going to get weird. I don't want the conversation to get weird, I and mean, then people don't know how they feel, don't know what to say. She's like, so just to be able to read something and go into a space where there's this topic, and you know, I can can connect. Um, she's like, I, I and so anyway, we started talking about IVF and all of it, and we just became friends from the, from that conversation. Love it. They just open this door to this, you know, kind of vulnerable space that neither one of us would have entered into uh but for this topic that we just had permission to discuss at that point. So I did feel as an author, I was like, oh, this this is a reminder, like this is why this is why we do this, that we give people entry points to vulnerable spaces that they otherwise wouldn't be able to enter into access, yeah, that.
1: that's for sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So um, going into the topic of of race, also, um, that's a, a theme in, in both of our books. Even though the books aren't about race, but because we have characters who yeah. are black, it's it's an, it's a layer that is shown. Uh, and I'll say for for the way that I approached it, and I definitely am going to throw it over to you to because it'd be great to to hear both um, experiences with this. The way that I thought about uh, writing this. Black female protagonist. I did not want to write a story about race at all, uh, but I—it was obviously something that can't be ignored because I have a black female protagonist. And I also thought of it as sort of a—a a benefit that yeah. we to to have this person and this person's perspective to be able to teach the lessons ultimately of the story, which I view as the path to fulfillment and finding the courage to to be yourself, to express your your wants and desires and. Um, and ultimately thrive, finding out what thriving looks like for you uniquely, authentically. So this, this journey of authenticity from a black woman's perspective who has all these additional layers of societal judgment. And so what that uh, writing process and that journey do <laughs> was to think about for myself, even which I hadn't really, what is the experience internally and, and otherwise of being a black woman? What does that mean in contemporary society? what does that feel like? What, what is it? When, when do I, What am I aware of it? You know, what, what's there to be aware of? What lessons does it teach me? Mm-hmm. What are, where's the pain? Where are the, where's the joy? What are the benefits? So I wound up having to do that exploration and then, uh, and then build that into Tabitha's journey and her character. So, uh, so, you know, there were important conversations that I, I brought into uh Brought into uh Tabitha's experience, her grandmother happens to be white. And the most meaningful scene for me to write was uh when they asked each other a question, which I feel like none of us really do, which is what does race feel like to you? What is what's what's your experience? And it's just that was such a vulnerable space, and it was a that was one of the most daunting scenes for me to write. Um, at one point, I felt like I had to—I I felt like I was carrying the weight of reflecting this for all, <laughs> all <laughs> women, all white women, Uh-oh. and I had to remind myself. Yeah. Best characters. So I just wondered uh, what your experience—how how did you approach writing about race? What were your thoughts about that? What preparation did you have to to do to with? personally to to write it, and and did you have any particular goals?
1: Yeah, so unlike you, when I started um, thinking about The Kindest Lie and conceiving that as a story I wanted to tell, I was definitely thinking about race, um, because that's something that I'm always just consumed by. I think of it as America's original sin, Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was inspired by the election of Obama in 2008. I didn't start writing the book until Obama's second term, but I was definitely thinking about um, the racial divide in America. And while it was a time of great hope that was, you know, almost palpable for so many, um, it w- we were still divided. And I was seeing that play out on my social media feed. And then at the same time, people were saying we're now post-racial as a society because we've elected a Black president. And that yeah. was clearly um, a fallacy. That was not
2: the hopeful, case
1: hopeful no thinking. <laughs> hopeful thinking, wishful thinking, but not the case. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to tell that story, but I didn't want to write a book, you know, to say, this is a book about racism, you know, racism was just kind of an entryway for me to get into it. Um, because I think there's a danger in trying to write a piece of resistance, you know, and to go into mm-hmm. it, thinking about it in that way. Um, and I think about now, you know, the timeliness of my book with the, um, you know, the unfortunate murder of George Floyd. And a lot of folks think that I wrote the book, um, you know, after that happened, that it was kind of a response to that. And it certainly wasn't because I wrote it so long ago in the um, Obama era. But I think after the murder of George Floyd, so many people started doing um, anti-racism reading and yes. a lot of that was nonfiction. Um, and sometimes and I know I know a lot of people who have done that reading and and sometimes they start to feel defensive about what they read. You know, mm-hmm. like that's not me. You're not talking about me. Are you trying to call me a racist? What? And um, but with fiction, there's this power and this way to really get under people's skin and really connect with people in a way that they can do it. And it's not um, they don't have to be defensive about it, you know, and uh, you can do that through story uh, and storytelling. And so that's what I was really trying to do um, in terms of writing about race so, for example, Ruth, you know my main character, this um, engineer. On the one hand, you know, also racing class, that intersection. So, on the one hand, she is very successful financially, but yet when she's on the L train with her husband in Chicago, and this, you know, um, white cop is hassling a black boy who's drumming for yes. tips. She and her husband are sitting there rigid with fear over what might happen because they know what often does happen. And then on her job, she's getting passed over for promotions, you know, in the engineering um, space. And so there are all these ways that she experiences that. And then on the other hand, I'm showing life through the perspective of this white boy who's 11 and his family is struggling. His dad's just lost his job at the plant. They're really having a hard time financially. Yet you see throughout the book, he's able to walk through the world with a degree of white privilege. And so both of these things can be true for both characters when we're talking about race and class. And then the other thing I'll say is that I think as Black authors, we often think about what is it we really want to write about our communities. I think we feel this, I don't know, you can tell me if you feel this too, but I think you've even alluded to it, this extra burden as Black authors about how we are going to represent our communities and portray our communities. And I know I worried about that, like I said, with the teen mom. And then this, um, Ruth's brother Eli, who's lost his job, he's spending too much time at the bar. He's kind of a, you know, portrayed a bit as a deadbeat, you know, mad. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, and I worried about these portrayals. And so that's one thing. And then also, whether we want to talk about Black, it is exhausting. Yeah, that's why Black girls must die <laughs> exhausted for sure as Black female authors. And so then there's Black joy versus Black pain, because you hear so many Black authors say, there's some who say, I'm tired of reading about slavery, or I'm tired of reading about Black folks you know, struggling, and that I want to write about the joys of what it means to be Black. And I get that, because we are so burdened, and there are so so few representations of who we are out there. So we feel responsible for putting out the best representation of us. And so I've struggled with that, and I've tried to combine Black joy with the Black pain in my book. And I don't know how you feel about
2: that. Well, I think that Black joy and Black pain do... Uh, go together. And yeah. there, are, I hope I'm um, crediting this correctly, but I, I, it's uh, Sonia Taylor, Sonia Renee Taylor, The Body's Not an Apology, she wrote. Uh, I believe she coined this, I'm not sure, but it's where I first saw it. She said that culture evolves as a um, survival mechanism uh, for oppression and uh, societal mm-hmm. experience. And I thought, wow, you know. Black joy, Black culture, if you look at it as a survival technology, that's the word she used, a survival technology for the oppression of the spirit. Like it's literally the survival um, mechanism for the, the survival of the spirit for oppressed people. In this, mm-hmm. if you think about it like that, you kind of need to under, to really truly understand it. You have to understand the degree of oppression and the degree of trauma so that you understand and appreciate what has evolved and the degree of joy and the degree of celebration, the degree, why the colors are brighter, why the music has a down you know, beat in yeah.
0: its you
2: know why it has to be that way, because we're keeping souls alive, you know, in the face of this. And so I, for me, To fully celebrate that and appreciate that, that's why you know I don't write unprocessed trauma, but I'm but I you know you're gonna get the 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 lows and the emotional payoff, and I just feel like the to have the full emotional payoff, you have to go you know to a place, but as a as an author me personally I would not leave. A reader, there, you know, that's just that's not how I or what I write and how I write, but I am going to give you the emotional journey, like you know, we're we're going to go somewhere together. So that's um, that's how I think about it. But I, I I think that writing about the traumas in a certain respect is a celebration in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Like look, made it through
1: yeah. um,
2: all of it, and that's the pride of black. Yes, yeah.
1: right. There- you- Calm and- Yeah. Yeah. How do we get where we are? Yeah.
2: Right. And I think that that's something that everyone, whether you're black, whether you're not black, whether whatever that you can understand the weight of whatever that what the layers that you're if you just examine the layers of what you're dealing with and carrying and realize that you that could have taken you out at any moment, but yet you survive, yet you thrive, you know, and to be able to just say on any given day, I did, you know, I, I made it through yesterday, you know, Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm thriving today or I'm, or I'm going to thrive today and I'm going to celebrate myself because I'm making it, you know, I'm doing it. You got to understand those things. So
1: we are dealing with, you know, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson today, too.
2: Yeah. you know, it's all
1: part of that same um, continuum. Yeah. 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 I
2: and I also wanted to add when you were uh, saying something you said was really important about uh, the role of fiction in yeah. understanding race, because I think a lot of the literature that people turn to often is, is uh either non-fiction for contemporary understanding of race or then um historical fiction uh for this like context but there's just so it's so important i think to have story to be able to understand the contemporary experience because so much is nuanced and i noticed um and it's an internal journey that you really can't it can't be told to you for you to internalize because especially not, you you can't really relate. If somebody tells you, you know, whatever this is, this, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to connect into somebody's, you know, just objective recounting of something, but when you can be brought into the experience of it, it's a different type of thing. So, um, you know, I I could share more about that, but I will just say that post George Floyd, it was really encouraging to see the wide widening range of complexion of readers that I wound up talking to, uh, and people saying, you know, before this, I would have thought that this wasn't for me or that I couldn't connect, and now I'm realizing that I absolutely must, that this is necessary, and uh, and this is part of of life that I need to to learn about and experience. So as yeah, beautifully,
1: beautifully said. Um, and, and I think that leads into, and we've really talked about it a bit of who we're writing for, who is our audience um, for our books and um, and if we have an ideal um, reader in mind. And and for me, it's, it, it is a large audience because I've connected with so many different kinds of people which is what I've already um, talked about. Um but in addition, you know, I am also writing, you know, for the for me as um the little black girl growing up, you know, I am a huge Nancy Drew fan or I was a huge Nancy Drew fan.
2: Lord, were you really every we book. Oh, Sweet Valley High, but Nancy Drew, uh, yeah, every book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had like 60 plus
1: of those books and I still actually have them and stored in my mother's garage, the ones with the um the gold, the yellow um, you know, spines. Yeah, so I've got those and I mean, I just read every single one of them and just devoured them. And I mean, that was when I was really getting into my reading. Uh, And I didn't realize it then that I wasn't seeing myself on the page. I didn't recognize that at the time because I didn't know enough to know that. Um, And it wasn't until years later, I was like, oh, I wasn't represented there. And so I think for not just girls, but for women who look like me and who have my experience to be able to come to um, the Kindest Lie and anything else that I write and and really see themselves represented is um, so valuable. Uh, I'm doing an event, um, well, a couple of events with this um, group. It's Chicago Tech Academy. And so it's for um, young, for girls. All of them are girls of color, not all black, but they're, you know, going into the STEM fields. And so I was asked to be a guest speaker for them for, um, they have this little black, black dress event and they're, you um, going to be doing a fireside chat with me to talk about my book. And I was just talking yesterday with the organizers of that event. Um, And, you know, so we were just talking about my book and the things that, you know, we want to talk about in the fireside chat. And one of the young ladies, teenagers was there. Her name is Malia and she was in the background, but she wasn't on camera. And I heard her saying, is that her? Is that her? Like, oh my God, is that her? You know, and that, I'm like, oh my God, no, it's just me, you know? And so then I was able to chat with her a little bit and, you know, and she was excited. All these young girls, you know, high school girls are reading the book and having conversations. They want to talk about all of the issues that are, you know, in the book and talk about, you know, boys and Ruth's experience with Ronald, her, you know, the boy mm-hmm. she was, you know, in love with in high school who didn't really love her back, but you know, the boy that she had a baby with. And so they're just all those kinds of things they want to talk about and get into. And in addition to just aspirations and finding your own success and and um and so some of that, so I'm writing for those girls. I'm writing for that girl, Malia, that I just met yesterday. Yeah. You know, yeah. I want her to see herself in my novel. But then in addition, you know, the book has just reached such a wide audience of people. There's so many people. Who are not black you know who are other races white and other you know races who read the book and and also see themselves i mean i had a woman who said um who wrote to me on instagram and said my grandmother my belgian grandmother is just like mama the black grandmother in the kindest lie mm-hmm. and she said um they're so similar and she said and my grandmother who's belgian also has a can of bacon grease on the back of the stove <laughs> and so i was just mm-hmm. laughing And that's like a, you know, I thought a little more of a cultural kind of thing. And yet all kinds of people, you know, do these things. So she was like, yeah, like I read about this woman and I felt like I was reading about my own grandmother. And uh, that was beautiful to be able to see that, you know, how universal a story can be. So what about you? You know, who, who do you have in mind when you think about who your reader is, who your audience is?
2: I, I well like you. I I when you said that I hadn't actually thought about that. But I think I was writing for myself first. I just wrote a book that I wanted to read yeah. as not just as a black woman, but as a really busy professional, and that I knew I would finish. It was like the book that I kind of wanted to to be able to pick up instead of watching Real Housewives or something yeah. that it would it would call to me more than uh, than the remote and the in the couch, but. Uh, but other than that, you know, this it was a story that I really wanted to see, and I just thought it was important to have that representation. Um, in part because that was an experience. It was. It, I also wanted to understand more of my own experience as a Black woman, and uh, and I think books also lend themselves to the development of empathy in a West and story that is is unparalleled. So I wanted to have this journey of a black woman uh, that's a story that's, uh, again, not about race, a, a, a contemporary story, a, a fresh story that you haven't really seen before, but adding in the layers of her experience where she is the best teacher for whatever this journey is, which is again, this journey toward authenticity and finding one's voice and, and figuring and, and fighting for thrival, not survival. <laughs> I like that. Uh, but, um, and so that was, um, that was my thought, but I I believe I, I really believed in my spirit and it was important for me to ha- have it feel authentic to a black woman who who reads it. Any black woman who reads it says, Yes, I recognize this, but have it accessible to anybody anywhere who reads it as a human story who says, Yes, I I, I understand this. I may not have had these exact same experiences, but on a human level, totally get it. And just to a quick story about this. I, when I first wrote the first chapter and there's a, a, a scene with the police interaction with Tabitha and she is going through something, I'm not, that's not a real spoiler, um, but I sent it to a friend of mine who, she's white, she's uh, German, uh, French-German, lives the French-German border, uh, teaches English, but not English, not the first language, and she's married to a woman and she's a fellow writer brilliant woman and i sent it to her cuz i was like well here's my writer friend like what do you think about this <laughs> is this even good <laughs> and um, and she wrote me back a couple of days later and said oh my god is that how black people feel in america that was what i was like well i don't know unpack what you mean and she said well for me and my wife when we go out in public and we know if we express our relationship in any way like physically we feel at that point that we're in danger a bit from any direction that we can't guarantee our own safety and it's not fair and it's not right and it's but we know that that's what we're subject to in the society that we're in and there's just this sort of sense of of pervasive kind of underlying fear and dread just about living life and going about regular life and she's like and she's like so i can't relate to being Black and I, but she's like, but that was what came up for me. Is that the right? Is that a good reference? And I was like, actually, that's great, a great reference. And that's amazing that that translated in that way and that that connected um, to completely distinct experiences, but connected to you know, people can connect people in that way. That taught me a really important lesson that sometimes we are speaking the same language and don't realize that we are just by virtue of what it looks like on the surface. So you know, so for... That made me think about something. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, just... no, no. That just made me think
1: about with one of my characters with Midnight. Um, he's a white boy, and I've never been white or never been a boy before, but I felt like he was a character I actually connected with the most in writing. And and it's because he's a kid who's on the stands on the outside of things, and I was bullied a lot yeah. growing up. And so everything that I felt at that age, at 11 years old, I tried to infuse into midnight, you know, mm-hmm. that, that sense of the desperation to be accepted and the, just the desire to want to be long and all of those things. So, um, yeah, so I totally get what you're saying about that kind of that universal piece
2: yeah, but I think a lot of times that comes up when people are reading outside of culture, outside of experience, yeah. something will come up, but then they'll question it and think, oh, maybe I can't trust this because it seems like this experience is so different from mine, so I, I, maybe I can't relate. And it's like, so I think just having this type of these stories and continuing to unpack it and encourage people to diversify their reading and have these conversations and start to trust what they're learning and gleaning from this and to have that understanding. Um, so, you know, that, that makes it very exciting for me to know that people are starting to uh, realize that what there is to learn and, and that the importance of diversity isn't just sort of representative diversity, but there's really a personal gleaning and learning that can come from it. Yeah, yeah, and so we do have a few
1: time for questions if people wanna put questions in the chat. I know we have uh, one that has come in, but are there other questions? Um, all right, do we want to get to the questions now? What do you think Jane or do you want to keep going? Uh, I think well we
2: have just a bit maybe we should
1: get to the questions.
2: <laughs> and then we can also
1: We want to talk about what we're working on too okay. books coming I know. but um, let's get to these questions. So this first one we have comes from Anissa. And thank you, Anissa. I saw your comment, too, about Midnight and how much you love Midnight. And and we love you, Anissa. Anissa is such a, I call her a super reader. Um, She says, uh, what did she say? Oh, here it is. What is the best advice that you have received from another author? I'll let you go. Take that one.
2: (laughs) I have have one. And and I'll say, I I did not take it well when I first got it. I got advice. I actually was like, solic- I was seeking advice, which might be why I haven't uh, sought a lot of advice since this. But there was one author who I looked up to and I wrote him an email and I was like, do you have any advice for an aspiring writer? And um, he wrote and said, uh, a, a writer, a true writer would not be writing me, a true writer would be writing I was, oh. so mad. I was so upset for, by that. And, um, and it took me years and years to really understand, even though it was, it was phrased in a way that was not uh, particularly helpful for me at the time. But I understand and I understood that, especially in terms of turning professional and being a professional writer, it is just a discipline of, um, of writing and writing every day. And, and there's nobody that can do it but you. <laughs> there's yeah. no one yeah there's there's no one that can help necessarily so um so that yeah. was you know that was like we were looking for someone to save us we're looking for someone to do it for us and you know there's there's not not anyone who can with writing and being an author ultimately it it's you so that was probably the best piece of advice even though it took me a long time to appreciate yeah. it
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 and then that whole, that connects to that advice about butt in chair, keep your butt in the chair and write, and yeah. uh, and I remember um, crime fiction author Laura Lippmann telling me in a writing workshop one time, or after workshop, she was saying that you want to pay yourself first with your writing time, just like you pay yourself first in a mm-hmm. 401k, and I was like, oh, wow, and I'm not always doing that, and I need to do that more, mm-hmm. she was like, that should be what comes first before everything else in your day, uh, I will say the other piece of advice I got was from Tayari Jones, author of *An American Marriage*, and I studied with her at Ten House Summer Novel Workshop one year. And um, and so in my story, I have Ruth going back home, and you know she's seeing her grandmother, the character of Mama, and they haven't mm-hmm. seen each other in years. And I had all this conflict and you know yanking curtains and <laughs> snatching dishes, and I was trying to create all this drama. <laughs> And she's like, stop all that yanking and snatching." And she said, that's not working. She said, you need to show that these two women love each other. She said, readers connect with characters they see loving and connecting with each other. Mm -hmm. And that then when there is a conflict between them it's going to be magnified because Mm -hmm. there's a real relationship there. And that was golden for me and I'm taking that for everything. Um, I write. So I think for any writers out there, it's really good wisdom um, in terms of how we sometimes as writers think we need to create conflict in a certain way, but it's not always the ways that we think. Um, So I think we have another question. Okay. This one is for you, Jane. When did you decide to have Tabitha's grandma? Oh, this is interesting. Be white. Well, is she white?
2: She is. So it was okay. a journey. Yeah. Oh, I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about
1: uh, Gretchen.
2: Oh, Miss Gretchen. Oh, yeah. Miss Gretchen is I'm unraised. About, yeah. What's yeah. a whole other? I forgot. to Yeah. That's, That's why I was thinking. Oh, I was like, ooh. Okay. Yeah. Miss Gretchen is an unraised character. I don't know if anybody's yeah. read the book no. and yeah. I didn't know that, but um, I didn't write a race for her. But uh, but for Gra- Tabitha's grandmother, what I um, what I decided with. For Tabitha, when I was exploring what race was, because I had to do the internal exploration, uh, I realized that there's, it's an invention, societal convention, invention, and there's two there's black and there's white. And so to explore blackness, I also had to explore whiteness. And really to be able to do that um, in a space of vulnerability, I needed to have a really close character to Tabitha, uh, where there's a relationship of pure love, where just anything can be said, discussed, explored, it can go anywhere and come back from it. And so at first I thought it was maybe a parent, um, not a parent, but a space parent. And then I realized that's a little bit too complex of a relationship. And that's not the purity of, of pure love without conflict that I needed. I So it, I realized it's her grandmother, like it's a grandparent. That's that that, you know, in a functional relationship, that's that pure love, deep love, kind of (laughs) like deep love relationship where this could take place. So I just felt that that was the important space to do it. And then through Granny Tab, I was able to show the effects of race on her as a white woman who has family that she chose to give up a lot of her privilege, even though she came from you know, poorer family, she was still giving up her racial privileges because she fell in love with a black man who was to have this grandfather. And so it had effects on her. So to be able to show those effects just through these people and their stories, uh, that was why I made that decision that it was to be able to show kind of all aspects of this to try to gain an understanding. so funny
1: how I've internalized Miss Gretchen now as just <laughs> like a grandmother figure. Now. Yeah, I, yeah, she's, she's yeah. Grand, grand, grandmother's bestie. She's grandma's bestie. Yes, yes, and I knew that was the whole thing of you didn't, you know, you let people decide the race for themselves, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, any other questions that people have? Okay, uh, Laura. Hey, Laura. She says, Hello. "Do you too like writing nonfiction or byline articles?" You were brilliant in fiction, but what about other forms of writing? I can take that one. Um, So yes, I do. I love writing. um, Oh, she loves us. Thank Thank you. We love you back, Laura. Um, I love writing uh, nonfiction as well. And so I've written quite a few, not quite a few, but I've written several essays. One, an essay about, which I mentioned earlier, my bullying experience, being bullied as a kid and losing my voice in a figurative sense. Um, because of it and then finding it again. And I feel like now really finding it again as an author, but I wrote in 2015 uh, about that experience and my own arc uh, for, oh, the Oprah magazine, Uh, November 2015 issue is where that is. And then um, once I got on, was under contract for The Kindest Lie, we were thinking about, this is something that happens in the publishing world. We think about are there uh, companion pieces, essays that you can write that connect with the themes of the book? And so um, I wrote this essay that I'm really um, excited about for the February issue, last February, February issue of Real Simple Magazine. And, and it's about cross-racial friendship. And since in my book, I have this cross-racial friendship between Ruth and Midnight. Um, I also, uh, my literary BFF is a white woman author Julie Carrick Dalton, author of Waiting for the Night Song. And so I wrote in real simple about our cross-racial friendship and just the, the challenges of that and moments that I think in writing it, you know, she she didn't even know I was upset about things that happened. And, um, and so we had some really great conversations during the course of me writing that essay. But I love to be able to connect the fiction with the nonfiction and have my own take on it, whereas I try not to be didactic or really telling too much about myself and my fiction, obviously, even though it's always an outgrowth of who you are. I think in the nonfiction is where I really get to say, here's what I think. And um, Laura said, that's very interesting to hear, Nancy. Love the article in Real Simple. Is it hard to write those um, nonfiction pieces? That's part two of the question. I think I love doing it, but it is difficult. You know, I worried about... um, my friend mainly about Julie, you know, and when I'm writing this, I worried about what is she going to think about what I have to say. And, um, and, but she told me, I talked to her about it, but I didn't let her read it. And she said, I don't want to read it because it's your piece. And, and I didn't want her to influence it at all. But um, I think, so I think it is difficult because you're, you're mining your own experiences and it's, and you feel more exposed. Whereas with fiction, I can kind of relay some of my experiences, but hide behind, character. So I'm hiding behind midnight in a way by talking yeah. about being bullied as a kid. But then when I write for old magazine about being bullied, that's me, you know, and I'm telling you a piece of my truth and I don't know how you're going to feel about that because it's really me that's out there in front of you. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Jane?
2: I've, I've had, uh, I've been working on an essay for probably a year and a half oh, okay. <laughs> and, I, and I have, well, I've, Probably started three or four essays, so I haven't done any bylines or um, or essays or placed anything other than fiction. And I find that it's so much easier to write fiction because I know what story I'm telling. It's contained and it's it's clear. It's got its you know container. But when I'm writing an essay, I just have so much more I want to say. And so that's what's taken me so long. It's just so much harder for me to go into that space. You know, I was writing an essay about my um, experience to publishing and some of the issues around bias. And I just had so much that I wanted to say about that. And with, when you're showing something in a, a story, you know, it's, you can have the emotional impact and the, the story impact. It's so much easier for me than to have to explain it in this other kind of way. Um, even though I can show it through stories I, uh, incorporate so I'm working on something that I hope to place soon and finish soon actually but thank you for that question actually because that's going to be my little kick in the rear to go back to it and push myself
1: yeah that's a great (laughs) question and the the advice I've gotten from uh, editors I've worked with you know from consumer magazines was just you have to it's still the you're still going to have that container but it's a smaller container really you know and really picking one narrow, kind of a more narrow experience, you know, yeah. narrowing it down a bit and, uh, but still, but it's a challenge because you're still having to show that arc. They still want to see that transformation of here's mm-hmm. where you started, and then here's that you hopefully end up someplace different, you know, and you're yeah. all revealing these universal truths at the same time without saying, here's a universal truth, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, exactly. it's a challenge, but I really, I really like um, that form. Um, so I love these questions. These are great. Oh, when will our next books be out? That's what we were going to end on, I think, right? Yeah, right. But so, well, I,
2: I can take that. Yeah, My, you've got something common, right? I've got, uh, The third book in the Black Girls uh, trilogy, the finale, uh, is uh, expected February, 2023. So like mid, early mid-February, 2023. And then oh. I have another book that is, uh, we don't have a date on that yet, but there'll be a, a fourth standalone book in a different universe. It does involve surfing, black girl surfing. I said so. <laughs> so that's what I'm working on right now. I'm, I'm actually. I'm
1: glad you said February 2023 because I told Julie, our producer, that I was like, "She's her next book is February. I think it's coming out like before the end of the month, which is like February. no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Okay, next, next. Year. I was wrong. I was wrong. <laughs> so we have some time to wait and be, get really excited for it, and I can't wait for it. Um, so for me. Uh, In addition to promoting the Kind of Sly, the paperback release um, this month, I'm also working on um, book two, uh, which is due to my editor in May, first week in May. So I'm on a tight deadline to get that done. And uh, that is called People of Means. That's the working title. And so it is historical dual timeline. And it's a, a story about an upper middle class, Black mother and daughter, both of them coming of age at different moments of racial reckoning in America. So the mother coming of age in 1960 in Nashville, Tennessee, during the time of the sit-ins there. She's a college student uh, at Fisk University. And uh, then her daughter coming of age in 1992 in Chicago, but heavily influenced by the events in LA with the acquittal of the four white police officers for the beating of Rodney King. So I'm dealing with resistance, purpose, love, but also I think, Fans of The Kindest Lie will also, you know, really like this book because I'm also addressing race, class, and family again. So this has been wonderful. So excited to be with you today, Jane. This was fun.
2: Thank you, Nancy. Thank you. This has been amazing. Great conversation with you always. I love talking. I know. We
1: need to just take this (laughs) on the road and do this every right? I know. That'd be fun. We should. We should, right? Like, you know, (laughs) we'll make it happen. but thanks to road everybody trip. who tuned in. I know road trip. I love that. Thanks to everybody who tuned in. Thanks to our Mighty Blaze family um, for organizing this special event conversation between the two of us. So thanks,
0: everybody. And we'll see you well, next thank time. You. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. My debut novel, A Fast-Paced Adventure Called Herrick's End, is available now if you want to check it out. My handle is tmblanchette on Book Talk, Bookstagram, Facebook, and BookTwitter, and I'd love to see you there. In the meantime, we'll see you next time for an episode featuring Stuart Onan. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. <music>